You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. This morning in our study of Matthew, we've come to the 15th verse of the 24th chapter. We're going to read down to verse 28. Matthew 24. And we read beginning with verse 15. Our Lord said this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. And whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his garment. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. Therefore, if they say to you, Behold, He is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, Behold, He is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and appears even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord, we are now considering profound things as we think through the words of our Lord, future, end of the ages. Lord, we are encountering things that are only possible for us to grasp because You've revealed them and only possible for us to grasp by the help of Your Spirit. Lord, we love You and we thank You that we do. We, we love You because You have loved us. And the longer we live, the more aware we become that our continuance in the faith is not explained by our holding on to You as much as it's explained by Your holding on to us. How grateful we are for these Lord's days. Lord, this is a means that You've ordained for our perseverance. This is a vital, essential thing that allows us to continue with you. We thank you for the ministry of the Word of God through singing and through prayer and through testimony and through conversation, but especially in this next hour, Lord, through the preaching of your Word. We ask you to be at work. Help me to preach. Help us to hear it. Mindful, Lord, of people in our midst who don't know you, we ask that you would save. Mindful that we've gathered as your sheep. We ask you to feed us and to edify your church in ways that we need, in ways that 
Lord, you're even more aware of than we are. So we ask you to make use of this. We'll give you thanks for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. We are living in a world that has believed lies. Lies that accord with man's fallen nature. And so they are lies not told in some small measure. They are lies that are filling the world all around us all the time. Men are living in the realm of imagination. They are living in the realm of damning imaginations. Things that are not true, but men want to believe that they are true, and men want to pretend that they are true, and men want to live as though they are true. They are not imaginations that have just arisen from nowhere. They are imaginations that reflect the doctrines of demons. You do understand you are living in a world that is being demonically informed. Well, one of those lies, it is a demonically inspired narrative. One of those lies we never stop hearing about. You'll hear it every day. You hear it in songs. You hear it through politics. You see it depicted in movies. You now hear it more and more on the personal level as people talk about their individual dreams and ambitions and goals in life. It has now even been formalized in the realm of public education. It is the false hope that one day this world can get its act together. One day, apart from Jesus, apart from the God of the Bible, this world, oh, might it get its act together. A vision, a dream of what really amounts to a secular paradise. A world where there's peace, no warring between nations. A world where there's harmony on the personal level between people. A world without all the things that Jesus has told us we're going to experience until He returns. It's the Word of Jesus versus the words of this world. Which ones can you believe? As man imagines a world without the wars that Jesus talked about, without the natural disasters that Jesus talked about, without the diseases that Jesus talked about. A world in which there will be no need for false Christs or persecutions or family betrayals because maybe we'll arrive at a place where we can just agree there is no God. Or if we're at least going to hold on to the notion there's a God, maybe we could all agree that no one has a sure, authoritative, view of God. You can have your view of God and I can have my view of God and we should all be able to get along perfectly fine because no one's view of God is really superior to another's. And really, at the end of the day, it's not consequential, is it? I mean, what we think about God, does it really matter? And that's this world's version of religious utopia. It is a world in which maybe religion abides, but without any surety, without any authority. According to this false hope, as I say, you hear it all the time, people are evolving. People are being enlightened. We're more enlightened than we've ever been. Don't you know this? The old ways of thinking are passing away and new ways of thinking are coming into being. In fact, all you dinosaur boomers 
You're struggling as your vision of the world is passing away and this wonderful new thing is coming into being. Don't you know this? should know it because it's actually been going on ever since the fall of man. You can look back to the Tower of Babel and see an example of men who think that by uniting they can build a tower into the heavens. According to the narrative, the 60s were much wiser than the 50s. The 70s more enlightened than the 60s. The 80s more modern compared to the 70s. The 90s outdid the 80s. And on and on we go until finally we've arrived at this generation that is smarter than all those that came before it because we're advancing. We think there's this parallel because we advance in technology, which is really the result of the accumulation of knowledge in the realm of technology. We think that because we're advancing in technology, we're advancing as people. And so one day, as we continue to advance, we'll arrive at this place where all the world's problems have been solved, all of its ills have disappeared. We will have a heaven on earth without God, without Jesus. Well, we began looking at something very different than that last Sunday as we began looking at verses 4 through 14. The disciples came to Jesus. They had questions for Him. Their questions wrapped up in their questions were their expectations regarding the kingdom that Jesus will usher in Himself. Their questions had to do with the timing of that kingdom and signs by which the kingdom would be recognized, His coming would be recognized. Jesus begins by telling them of something very near to them. That's the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in verses 1-3. through and then he begins to look beyond their time to the future, a time that is still in front of us. And he lays out, he maps out an outline of future events. Verses 4 through 14 describe the age prior to Daniel's 70th week. Or perhaps they map out what will belong to the first half of Daniel's 70th week. There's seven years of tribulation coming. Daniel chapter 9 speaks of it. Daniel chapter 12 speaks of it. Paul's letters to the Thessalonians speak of it. There's a time of tribulation coming upon this world such as it has never seen before or will ever see after. Jesus says this, if you look at verse 21, He says, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will B, this, this time of trouble is coming, Jacob's trouble. And our Lord begins to talk about this, but the question that interpreters have is, verses 4 through 14, I'm speaking of course now from a premillennial point of view, verses 4 through 14, is this a general reference to what the world can expect leading all the way up to the midpoint of the tribulation period? We get to verse 15 where we are this morning, we're going to talk about that. Verses 4 through 14, does this describe in general terms the church age leading into the first half of the tribulation period? So you have the rapture of the church at the beginning of the seven years, but still a general description that gathers all of that up, leading to the sign of the great tribulation, midpoint of the tribulation period, verse 15, or does everything Jesus talks about in verses 4 through 14 belong to the first half of the tribulation period? Let me tell you in advance, I will not die on this hill, okay? I will not 
be drowned based upon my viewpoint of this, but I tend to believe this is a general description that includes everything from the time Jesus is speaking up until the time of the sign He mentions in verse 15. I think it includes the age we're living in right now, but also will be able to describe the first half of the tribulation period. I noted last Sunday, if you were paying attention, that there's nothing that Jesus talks about in verses 4 through 14 that we aren't experiencing right now. Spiritual deception, false Christ, turbulent times throughout the world, both political disturbances and disturbances in nature, worldwide persecution of the people of God that's known both in the public realm and at the personal level, even down to the level of family division. Spiritual defection of professing believers, so you have apostasy. Worldwide evangelism. All of this has occurred during the church age. But what I believe is, when you begin that first half of the tribulation period, it's going to increase in frequency and in intensity. So that as Jesus says, the analogy He uses, it's like birth pains. As we get closer to the birth of the child, the labor pains grow more intense. Labor grows more intense. So it is, these things belong to the age leading up to the sign he mentions in verse 15, all the way from the time of Jesus till then. But when you get into the tribulation period, it increases in frequency and intensity. Now, if you disagree and you say, no, I think all of verses 4 through 14 refer to the first half of the tribulation period, I'm not going to argue with you. So don't waste my time by trying to argue with me. But that's my view of it. I agree with something that John MacArthur said, and I want to say it this morning as we continue looking at futuristic prophecy. I'm concerned sometimes about the attitude that people have when it comes to eschatology. Listen to what John MacArthur said. He said, I know people who want to make eschatology the primary litmus test for all theology. Many of them are novices in the faith. They would not be prepared to give a coherent account of the doctrine of justification by faith. They may be ill-equipped to defend any of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity, but they consider themselves experts on the timing of the rapture or the meaning of the seven seals in Revelation 5-7, through or they are convinced that there will be no rapture or literal earthly kingdom at all, and they regard anyone who doesn't see things their way as an adversary. Such people, it seems, are constantly spoiling for a debate on eschatological fine points. Close quote. I agree with that. That mirrors my own attitude, my own heart about it. What we must all agree about is we are looking for the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What we must all agree about is He is going to return just as He left, as He told His disciples. So He's going to come visibly, publicly, bodily. If you're looking for the return of Jesus, would you say amen? That is non-negotiable. But beyond that, we're doing our best to grasp what God has revealed and to be faithful to what He has said. So beginning at verse 15, what I want to share this morning are five facts about a time of trouble unlike anything the world has ever seen before. We pick up at verse 15 at the midpoint of the tribulation period and we're thinking about a time of trouble, thinking now about the entirety of the tribulation period, a time of trouble unlike anything the world has ever seen before. Five facts about that time. The first thing we see is this, the sign 
of this tribulation. Verse 15, the sign of this tribulation. Remember, the disciples asked Jesus, when will all these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They have a timing question and they have a recognition question. When will this happen? How will we know? What will be the sign? I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. There is no sign that precedes the rapture of the church. But at verse 15, you're in the middle of the tribulation period. There are signs that precede the second coming of Christ, the second advent of Jesus to the earth. And Jesus, in giving a sign in verse 15, says this. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Which, by the way, does indicate, doesn't it? The Spirit of God at work through Matthew, this is also included in Mark, anticipates a time beyond the time when Jesus is talking to His disciples, when believers will be reading these accounts. And by reading these accounts, we'll be able to recognize what Jesus is talking about. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. And whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his garment. Woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Jesus gives a sign. It is something observable. The, the readers will be able to see it and understand what Jesus was talking about. The time is unspecified. It doesn't tell us when this is going to happen. Just watch. He's saying to those who will be alive and reading this at the time, watch for when it happens. It represents something detestable. The abomination of desolation. Abomination, something that is grossly offensive, an object of disgust, something loathsome, something blasphemous, something that pollutes. And it represents something that leaves desolate, the abomination of desolation. The word for desolation is a word that speaks of something that devastates, destroys, can even mean to depopulate it is ruinous, is the idea. So something detestable that destroys, that is ruinous. Something recognizable because it is so clearly out of place. When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. What is the holy place? The temple. Which is why I believe you will have a rebuilt temple in the city of Jerusalem at the time when this occurs. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Mark words it this way, Mark 13 verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, that's the English standard version, where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Why do the ESV translators translate it where he should not be? 
New American Standard has where it should not be. Why does the ESV translate it he? Well, because the participle standing is masculine. The word abomination is neuter. It's an unusual construction. The Edmund Hebert writes this, Mark's expression laid stress on the violation involved. Standing is a masculine participle, although the noun abomination is neuter. The fact that Mark deliberately, though ungrammatically, used the masculine points to the fact that he regarded the abomination as personal, he rather than it. It seems clear that Mark was thinking of the personal Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-10, Revelation 13, 1-10, and verses 14 and 15. In time, the scene relates to the prophecy of Daniel's 70th week, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24-27, when the prince that shall come shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, verse 27 of Daniel 9. This interpretation of the words of Jesus presupposes the end-time reestablishment of the Jewish temple and worship. So you have... A man, you have someone who is standing in the holy place. This is the abomination of desolation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Why don't you turn there? I want you to see this with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verse 1. The Bible says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now we talked about this last week. The Apostle John, while acknowledging that there is an antichrist who is coming, a man of sin who is coming. The world right now is full of many antichrists. So we meet with many antichrists, but there is still the antichrist who has not yet come. Paul writes, the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's the abomination of desolation. He says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know, I mean, here's a church upset because some people are saying the day of the Lord has already come. And he says, you know the day of the Lord has not come because the abomination of desolation has not occurred. And you know, verse 6, what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Who will destroy the Antichrist? Jesus will. When? When He comes again, with the appearance of His coming, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Look back at Matthew 24. So Matthew makes clear this is something prophesied in the Old Testament. This was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Daniel 9.27 says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. This is Daniel's 70th week. A period of sevens, which is seven years. Daniel writes, And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So at the midpoint of that tribulation period, he enters the temple, declares himself to be God, puts an end to all the sacrifices taking place. Daniel goes on to write, And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is the sign. Again, MacArthur writes this. He says, The book of Daniel mentions the abomination of desolation three times. Chapter 9, verse 27. Chapter 11, verse 31. Chapter 12, verse 11. In Daniel eleven thirty-one, the term is used to describe the historical perversion of Antiochus IV, the Seleucid king who controlled Israel from 175 to 165 B.C., calling himself Theos Epiphanes, which means manifest God. If I could just pause for a moment. You have these things that happen in history that are like precursors. They're like previews of what will be the ultimate final expression of this, who will be the man of sin. But you kind of get a sense for what it might be like when you see someone like Antiochus Epiphanes. MacArthur goes on to say, Antiochus desecrated the temple in Jerusalem by sacrificing a pig on the altar, forcing the priest to eat its meat and erecting an idol of Zeus within its walls. With ruthless abandon, Antiochus oppressed the Jewish people, slaughtering thousands and selling many more into slavery. The intertestamental apocryphal books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees detail both atrocities committed by Antiochus and the Jewish people's ability to overthrow him and purify the temple. But the desecration of the temple by Antiochus IV was only a foreshadowing of the Antichrist's future perversion. Daniel 9.27 and 12.11 describe the, that end-time event situated at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week when, when the Antichrist will set up his throne in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and declare himself to be God. Whereas Antiochus IV erected an idol of Zeus in the temple, the final Antichrist will exalt himself as God and demand the worship of all people on earth. Revelation 13, verses 7 and 8. His blasphemous religion will be promoted by the ultimate false prophet who will perform great miracles through Satan's power in order to deceive the world. Now I'm not this morning going to go back to Daniel 9 and study all that. Let me say two things. One, I covered all that in a series on the Olivet Discourse back in 2002. You can find it online. I'm not punting. I just don't want to go back through it all this morning. But following our study in Matthew, I plan, Lord willing, we would prefer the Lord Jesus to return and I not do this. But if He doesn't and I live, my plan is to take us through the book of Revelation. So following Matthew, we're going to go through the book of Revelation and deal with all things eschatological. It'll be my eschatological Waterloo. It'll be my last moment probably to do all of that. But just for this morning, I'm content to say this is the sign that Jesus gives that will take place at the midpoint of the tribulation period. It will be unmistakable. People will recognize it. And the Holy Spirit preserves it for the readers who will be alive at the time when it happens. Let the reader understand. Second fact he gives us, there will be a sign 
that says the great tribulation has arrived. The second thing we find is it will be a time of urgency. Urgent action. Notice the urgency exhorted upon those who will be believers at this time. Verse 16, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. And whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his garment. The persecution will be severe throughout the seven-year period. But when the Antichrist takes his place in the temple and declares himself to be God, it will mark a turning point for things that are even worse. And believers are called upon, those who will read this and believe it, are called upon to take action immediately when they see this sign. John Grasmick commented, the events of 167 B.C. and A.D. 70 foreshadow a final fulfillment of Jesus' words just prior to His second advent. Mark used the masculine participle standing to modify the neuter noun abomination. This suggests that the abomination is a future person standing where he does not belong. This person is the end-time Antichrist. He will make a covenant with the Jewish people at the beginning of the seven-year period preceding Christ's second coming. The temple will be rebuilt and worship reestablished. In the middle of this period, after three and a half years, the Antichrist will break his covenant, stop temple sacrifices, desecrate the temple, and proclaim himself to be God. This launches the terrible end-time events of the Great Tribulation. Revelation 6, 8, 9, 16, those who refuse to be identified with the Antichrist will suffer severe persecution and be forced to flee for refuge. Many, both Jews and Gentiles, will be saved during this period, Revelation 7, but many will also be martyred, Revelation 6, 9-11. So our Lord says when this occurs, move, run, take refuge. Verse 16, get into places of refuge. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Verse 17, move without regard for what you leave behind. If you're on a housetop, don't go down and gather your things. If you're out in the field, verse 18, don't turn back to go get a garment. Go. Anything that slows you down will be devastating, which is why in verses 19 and 20, woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight won't be in the winter on a Sabbath. This is going to be a time of great urgency. Preached a funeral service yesterday for a friend. One of the grievous aspects of that funeral service was to watch as pictures were taken with a casket and a Lamborghini. Dear ones, you're living in a world, as I said earlier, living in the realm of lying imaginations, people treating things that don't matter really and won't last like they are worth your soul. When this day arrives, our Lord's words once again communicate to people, your soul, your life matters more than your possessions. Your life matters more than your garments. Don't go gather your things. Get out. Well, I want to say to you, just an application of that truth, the wrath of God is reality. Men without Christ are living under His wrath right now, but the day of wrath is coming. Just as John the Baptist warned people and said, flee from the wrath that is coming. So I want to say to you, the wrath of God is on its way. 
what will you give in exchange for your soul? People who are living for the things of this world instead of Christ. People who actually value the things of this world more than their own soul. You are living a fool's life. Before we know it, this passing age will be over. And all that will matter for all eternity is were your sins forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Did you receive Him as your Lord and Savior? Your Lord and Savior. Did you receive Him as the one who would take over your life? Did you lose your life to have His? And the only people who've lived wise lives will be the people who lost their lives to gain Christ and the people who held on to their lives and forfeited Christ will be revealed as those who lived the lives of fools. So just as these people are exhorted to leave their stuff behind and save themselves, I exhort you this morning, metaphorically, to leave your stuff behind and embrace Jesus for life. A time where there's a sign, a time where there's great urgency. Third, a time of great difficulty. Verse 21, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Nor ever will. This is one reason among many that I am not a millennial. This is one reason among many why I am not a preterist when it comes to these words. I don't believe that all this was fulfilled in the year 70 A.D. Jesus is talking about a time of tribulation that the world has never seen before and will never see after. Just walk through the book of Revelation and take into your heart the judgments that will be unleashed as the seal is broken as we sang about this morning. And the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are unleashed. Just listen to the sorts of things described a great earthquake that will devastate the earth, Revelation 6, 12-17. Hail and fire consuming a third of the earth's vegetation, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. A third of the ocean turned into blood, turned red like blood, chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. A third of fresh water poisoned, Revelation 8, 10 and 11. A third of the sun, moon, and stars darkened, Revelation 8, verse 12. Countless demons released from bondage to terrorize people. Revelation 9, 1-12. A third of the earth's population killed. Revelation 9, 13-21. Another great earthquake that kills 7,000 people. Revelation 11, verse 13. Incurable sores that will cause people great pain. Revelation 16, verse 2. Then the entire sea turned to blood. All sea creatures will die. Revelation 16, verse 3. Rivers turned to blood. Revelation 16, verse 4. The earth experiencing extreme heat. Global warming will then be true. Revelation 16, verses 8 and 9. Darkness will engulf the world. Revelation 16, 10 and 11. The Euphrates River will dry up. Revelation 16, verse 12. A final global earthquake that will cause massive changes to the earth's appearance. Revelation 16, 17 through 21. Yeah, a time of trouble cataclysmic events such as the world has never seen before and will never see after just prior to the return and the establishment of the millennial kingdom. So you have a sign, you have great urgency associated with the sign. You have the promise of a time of trouble unlike anything the world has ever witnessed. 
But in the midst of it all, you also have mercy. You have mercy. Look at verse 22. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. What does he mean that the time will be cut short? I think what he means, what he's saying to us, is that God has already determined in His sovereign decrees that He will not allow these events to run the full course of what human passions would allow. That is, what men would do if they were just left to do everything they want to do would result in not one single believer being left alive. But the Lord will not allow man to have His way. And He will preserve a remnant of His people who will be alive at the time that Jesus comes back to the earth. They'll be separated. We'll see this in chapter 25. The sheep separated from the goats. And those people, those believers who are alive when Jesus returns will be ushered into His kingdom alive. And the goats will be judged and put away. God will have mercy upon His elect people. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The fifth and final fact you see in verses 23-28, this will be a time where great discernment is needed. Great discernment will be needed. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe Him. Now you know this, dear ones. Even in our world right now, when things begin to feel like they're falling apart, Imaginations run wild. There are conspiracy theories that eventually prove to be true. And there are conspiracy theories that were just conspiracy theories. It is a sinful human tendency to begin to grope around for solutions and answers to things that are greatly troubling us. And this will be a time not only of great suffering and great persecution and events taking place in nature that are troubling human beings. It'll be a time of great deception. The intensification, the increase in frequency of the things that belong to this age, but now they're on steroids at this time. Great deceptions. And so our Lord is warning those who will be believers at that time. If anybody says to you, here's the Christ, or there He is, don't believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. I mean, the power of Satan will never be more on display than it will be at this time. So as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. Therefore, if they say to you, Behold, he's here in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and appears even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. A few things I want to point out. First of all, notice the security of the saints. Verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, and it is not possible, that's the point, even the elect. No matter what the strength of the deception is or will ever be, the elect of God are saved. 
God saves them and He holds on to them. He secures them. Will not allow them to be led astray. Such will be the power of the deception on hand at this time that if it were possible, even elect people would be led astray, but they won't be led astray. Precisely because God has chosen them for salvation. The security of the saints. Though the tribulation period has not begun, you're living right now in a time of great deception. You're living right now in a time of great upheaval in the world. I want to encourage you with the truth that you are safe in the hand of your God and safe in the hand of your Savior. And because the Lord has chosen to save you, you will never be led astray. Not in an ultimate final sense. You will not apostatize. The Lord is holding on to you and He will not let you go. But notice that He uses means as He keeps His people secure. Verse 25, Behold, I have told you in advance the means of the safety of God's people are the words of God. Jesus is saying, I've told you about all of this. I'm telling you about all of this. Safe in the hand of God, yes. We could also say just as authoritatively, safe in the Word of God. Safe in the truth of God. God has given us His Word and by that means He keeps us safe. And in fact, he goes on to explain how they will keep from being deceived when he tells them that my second coming is not something that will be done in a corner. When I come again, it won't be done in a corner. And by the way, you won't have to interpret it like, you know, I think Jesus came again. You know, I think, I don't mean to mock, but I think in AD 70, that was his second coming. Will the whole world acknowledge that? Does the whole world know that? Do you have to interpret it? Did it happen in some way that now it's secretive in some fashion? No. Jesus says, don't believe them because when I come, everybody is going to know it. Don't believe them if they say He's in the wilderness. Don't go out there. Don't believe them if they say He's in the rooms. Don't go there. Four, just as the lightning comes from the east and appears even to the west, so, in this way, the coming of the Son of Man will be. It will be unmistakable. Just like the lightning in a night sky, you can see from a great distance, as far as the eye can see, people know the lightning just moved from one side of the sky to the other. That's what it's going to be like, Jesus says, when I come again. Just like from a far distance, you can tell that some animal has died because I see vultures circling way over there there's got to be a carcass over there. There's got to be a corpse over there because I see the vultures circling, verse 28. That's what the Son of Man's coming is going to be like. The whole world will know that it has happened. John read it this morning, Revelation 1-7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. When He returns, the whole world will know it. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on Me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, 
And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. I've already told you, when Jesus returns, it will be not just a time of great judgment, but a time of great salvation. And the Bible indicates a time of an outpouring of salvation upon ethnic Israel. Many Jews will be converted. And Zechariah describes that day when those who pierced him will look on him and mourn for him. And he explains this as God pouring out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn. Their recognition and their mourning is the result of God's grace and mercy as He pours out upon that people an understanding that they did not have when they crucified their Messiah. In the 30th verse of this 24th chapter, our Lord says, and we'll see this tonight, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. The return of Christ will be unmistakable. Discernment will be needed, but discernment is afforded by God's saving work, by His Word. He's told us in advance, don't be deceived because when I return, everyone will know it. So let me finish where I began. This world is not going to get better and better. This world is not evolving. Mankind is not being increasingly enlightened. In fact, all of the so-called moral enlightenment that we're seeing in our culture, it's not advancement. It's not evolution. It's devolution. Inspired by the devil, and it expresses a downward spiral into a cesspool, a moral cesspool. Men aren't moving forward. They're simply returning to things in the past that they've embraced long ago that has always destroyed human lives. It's not going to get better and better. Men are not going to usher in a kingdom of peace. But there's a man who will. The Son of Man, the God-Man, Jesus will usher in a new world order. He will usher in the great kingdom that He promised. And the only people who are going to be in that kingdom are the people who have recognized that Jesus is the Savior who have mourned over their own sins, who have turned over their own sins away from their way of sin to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and for new life in Him. Those are the people who will be present in His kingdom. So I want to ask you, has that happened in your life? Have you turned from your sins to trust in Jesus for life? Are you one who believes the truth about this world? Or are you one who has been believing the lie? That somehow we're getting better and things are getting better and one day the world will, you know, there's the hope that the world will get better. Or are you one who recognizes, no, this world is a sinful mess and will be until Jesus returns. And the only salvation that will ever occur begins at the heart level, at the individual level, and Jesus is the Savior. Have you turned to Jesus for life? And then finally, you recognize that the only way to discern any time including your time. The only way to live godly in any time, including your time, 
is to place your faith completely in the Word of God. Young people, I want to especially exhort you today. We don't believe that sanctification occurs by isolation. We know that. It's not God's will. John 17, Jesus prays for us. He didn't pray that that our Father would take us out of the world, but that He would keep us in the midst of it. So we can't evangelize if we're isolated from people. So I'm not arguing for, for pietism. I'm not arguing for isolationism. But hear me. The things you're hearing constantly through music, movies, social media, popular messaging, those things that are not from Christ are coordinated. Not by the people, but by the prince of the power of the air. And there is a message that is communicated. Which is why you hear that message in songs and movies and education and politics. You go back even to some of the songs the Beatles sang. Why the world goes on believing. We look for the day. A worldly place of paradise that doesn't need God, doesn't need Jesus, doesn't need the forgiveness of our sins, doesn't need new life, doesn't need the standard of God's Word. That's the message that's communicated in all of these different ways. I just exhort you to start unplugging from those messages and plug into the Word of God whereby you will know the truth and be sustained in a world that is constantly warring against its Creator. Plug yourself into the Word of God. The church would say, Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the truth about this world and about its course. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've told us in advance what things will be like as we move toward the end of the age, the time, Lord Jesus, when you'll return from heaven, bringing salvation and judgment. Lord, would you grant us discernment for the time we're living in? Would you grant us the kind of discernment that doesn't nullify our joy We are meant to be joyful messengers. Always prepared to give a reason for our hope. If Christ is not risen, then we among all people are most to be pitied. But Christ is risen from the dead. And so, Lord, He has been raised. Therefore, we ought to be the most joyful people on the face of the planet, serving as missionaries and evangelists until the day comes that we meet with our Savior. Lord, You have given us earthly responsibilities. You've not taken us out of this world. We live in the midst of it, and yet let us live as the different people than we are, to live lives that are fitting, that fit with our calling. May You protect my brothers and sisters. May You protect this church. May You protect the next generation sitting under the sound of my voice. May You lead us and guide us in a way that we are kept safe in Your hand through the means of Your Word. And wherever we begin to stray and wander, Lord, thank You that You will be faithful to correct us and to shepherd us back into the right pathway. Help us to recognize, Lord, what are the most important issues in all the world and not to sell our souls for this world's candy, which is here for a moment and gone tomorrow. May You save and may You sustain. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.